0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back to our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here's the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell.
1: Welcome, everybody. Okay. Well, today is going to be an interesting show. We're talking about sports psychology and psychotic sports parents. (laughs) So, (laughs) You know, you attach the word psychology to sports, and that can really put a lot of roadblocks in people's minds. But, you know, sports psychology is the application of psychological principles to sport and athletes. So, basically, you know... it's using psychological efforts with athletes so they can increase their performance skills is basically what it is. And it's really interesting because it's a new field. It, it's been around for a little while, uh, of probably about 20 years, but a lot of universities are picking up sports psychology as programs. And a lot of people are pursuing sports psychologies as careers because, as you know, uh, sports is a multi-billion dollar industry and absolutely uh, sports at, sports psychology affects the performance of individuals and affects in a positive way and it affects the performance of teams in a very positive way and uh, teams are very proactive in bringing sports psychologists into their fold to assist them and you know any angle they can get to increase the propensity of their business and increase their 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 athletes potential they're going to invest in that and so this field is growing and it is fascinating and I'm going to try to open it up and really really give you this sense of what it's all about. And we're also going to go into these uh, young children that are faced with the idea of sports in their life and, and the, the concept of competition and the concept of performance and their psychotic parents along with that. All right. So, you know, understanding the field of sports psychology is, is very complicated. Using the term psychological in relation to psychological efforts can be both an asset as well as a hindrance and understanding in this field so misconceptions include thinking that sports psychology is for treating athletes with mental disorders or that is simply focused on getting an athlete through a slump or that it is just fluff And, and there's also a great deal of confusion about the credentials of sports psychologists primarily because there's been controversy within the field as to the appropriate credentials. And that's very true. I mean, not everybody that calls themselves a sports psychologist is an expert in sports. You know, in our society, there has been a stigma attached to the mental problems, which are frequently seen as a weakness. Therefore, many people have attached negative connotations to seeing a psychologist and may misunderstand the nature of seeing a sports psychologist. You know, I am not uh, an expert in sports psychology. I am... Practice uh, sports psychology in, and I let people know that come and see me that I'm not an expert in it, but I have seen quite a few athletes, young and old, and uh, it's amazing the results that you get when you work with these people. Um, Competitors need an optimal level of intensity. That's what people look for uh, in sports psychology, and what this really intensity term is it it, it can be too high or too low and a high intensity level can decrease concentration, focus and create problems with coordination, reaction time, strength and endurance. A low intensity level can decrease energy, reduce interest and motivation and also uh, reduce focus. So intensity is the word that sports psychologists prefer to use It's a neutral term rather than a positive term, energy, or a negative term like tension or anxiety. And the reason for this is that intensity can affect different competitors variously. For some, it positively influences their performance, whereas for others, it has a negative impact. So, therefore, it's important for us to understand the individual's reaction to intensity. So, once again, this word intensity we're going to focus on right now. The best way to understand it is that intensity is a a physiological reaction to a competitive situation. We experience physical symptoms that can either help us or hinder us. So, positive intensity, this is an increase in adrenaline, energy, heart rate. Blood flow, muscle tension may be experienced as a positive factor by many competitors. These physiological changes may increase confidence, determination, prepare them to meet the physical challenge. A high level of physiological intensity improves the outcome of their competition, especially when it's a sport or a position requiring a great deal of physical uh, activity such as a snowboarder, uh, a linebacker, a basketball player. Now, what is negative intensity? Negative intensity may have uh, the same physical sensations that can impact performance if the situation requires a great deal of concentration or accuracy such as golf or or a performance sport, the increased adrenaline, heart rate, muscle tension may actually interfere with performance. And so regulating intensity is what sports psychology is all about. And so, uh, you know, the, the influences on intensity level are things such as perception, Sometimes two different competitors can experience the same physical sensation, but interpret it in different ways. Uh, Physical agitation, increased heart rate, respiration could be viewed as I'm revved up and ready to go. Or it can be viewed as I'm nervous and I don't know if I can do this. So some people don't handle it well. Uh, Also, complexity uh, of a task is something that influences intensity level. If the uh, the competitive task requires greater focus, attention to detail, decision-making, fine motor movement, then it typically requires a lower intensity to think more clearly and respond more precisely. Whereas a higher intensity is necessary for tasks that requires a great deal of energy, endurance, speed, quick reaction without precise decision making. Now, also, we have to look at demands as an influence on intensity. Most people have a lower intensity level during practice than they do during competitive events because they're not as concerned with the outcome. Therefore, practice does not have as much demand regarding outcome. Not only does competition typically have more demand, certain types of competition may have greater demand. For instance, traditionally rival teams may experience greater demand than a competition when there has been no long-term rival than than when there's no been no long-term rivalry. So, you know, we got to look at that when we're working with athletes in the sports psychology field. Also, the effects of intensity levels, over intensity, you know, this, this is, can uh, create a number of internal and physical effects like a decreased focus, uh, competitors more distractible, more internally focused on negative or unproductive thoughts such as uh, fearfulness, and these thoughts can lead to decreased motivation. Also, uh, under intensity, sometimes competitors can have levels of physical uh, activation that are too low such as a heart rate or an energy level. And they may act lethargic when they're doing their work. An optimal level of intensity is another uh, factor which we look into. And, and I tell you that research shows that each competitor may have a sweet spot for performance when intensity level is high enough that they're motivated but not too high as to create a negative reaction that can impact their performance. So this optimal level of intensity may vary with each competitor, each sport or position played, and the type of event. Therefore, it's important for the competitor to learn how to analyze their performance so as to prepare for events effectively. And so when we work in 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 sports psychology, we are going for this optimal level of intensity. That's what we want. And I have to tell you, you know, um, people have to look at the idea of needing oxygen, you know, Athletes need oxygen to maintain any level of intensity. And the reason they do is in oxygen is 83% oxygen is in water, 23% oxygen is in air. So we need oxygen to maintain that high level intensity. So, athletes, you will see time and time again drinking from. A athletic bottle, a one with a nipple on top, an aerator on top, so it goes, you know, kind of chuk-chuk-chuk when they drink. Well, that aerator activates the eighty three percent oxygen molecules in water, and when it does that, then the muscles get the highest level of of uh, oxygen in the moment that they can get, it. and they get it instantly with an aerated bottle. Now, if you drink regular water from a regular bottle. Your, your brain has to break down those molecules and actually create the oxygen and grab the oxygen out of it. So it takes more time. That's why athletes uh, drink from the aerated bottles because it's instant oxygen. And I'll tell you this, many athletes don't even know why they drink from an athletic, that kind of a bottle. But that is why they do it. And, and so for us… And and the goal is to maintain that level of performance. And to do that, you have to have oxygen. A lot of people get stressed out when their intensity is too high and they start breathing through their nose, which means that they're getting about a straw's worth of oxygen. They're going to wear down very quickly. And so, oxygen is a huge performance-enhancing thing that all athletes have to focus on, and they need to continue to get as much of it as possible. That means they breathe through their mouths, and it also means they drink from an aerated bottle. Drink that water. That will keep your intensity up, but you have to have the psychology to keep that intensity up also. So, what, what causes over-intensity? Uh, requirements of the situation. You know, some, some events may require more of a competitor than others do for success, you know, a local event may not uh, require as much intensity because you don't have as many highly skilled competitors, such as in a regional or a national event. Um, there's also, uh, are the requirements manageable? The less confident the competitor is about their ability to meet the requirements of the situation, the more likely they will experience over intensity, uh, which would call, be called high anxiety. And uh, I can tell you that a lot of athletes that are very highly skilled crash because they feel, especially kids that are entering into a new level, like an age level that is much higher than the level they used to perform at, they enter that higher arena and now they're on the bottom. And they, uh, have a, it's very stressful for them to have to deal with that new age group because the kids are much bigger, more skilled, and suddenly they get a lot of anxiety. You know, when athletes move into a professional position from a college position, I can tell you, uh, the intensity is enormous for them. And so that is something that we manage in sports psychology and we try to help them. Through all kinds of techniques, uh, visualization, a sense of what their role is, keeping them focused in the moment, uh, reinforcing their thoughts on their skills, uh, letting them play their game. These are things that we work on to get these athletes back focused on what they do and reach their highest level. Also, another thing that causes over-intensity is consequences of not meeting the requirements. You know, each situation is, uh, has a variety of consequences. Many of these consequences can be self-imposed, such as an athlete's need to prove themselves, uh, the, to get the respect of others, uh, the, the sense that letting the team down by not going up to the sectional or the regional or, or the, the state or the national outcome because of one athlete not performing well and affecting the entire team. These things can cause enormous over-intensity, especially if they remain on the team, and let's say they come back in the next year, and guess what? Uh, They feel like they let everybody down, and then they let that get to their game. Also, the importance of consequences. You know, if an athlete believes that the consequences will not seriously impact their life then they're capable of handling the consequences. The less likely the intensity level will be too, too high. For example, uh, you know, if my performance, uh, you know, if I went blank or I forgot my routine, I no longer had the fear of embarrassment because I was able to tell myself, been there, done that, didn't die, so it doesn't matter. You know, in other words, I learned that consequences of forgetting my performances are manageable, so we have to put everything in its context, and that's so important. Um, the other thing is, you know, under intensity is huge, and that's caused by overconfidence, uh, where people get too cocky and they feel like an event is below them or it doesn't require much of them. A lack of interest, you know, some people are apathetic and and uh, they uh, they're not interested in an event or an outcome. And that can cause huge problems. Also, overtraining. If someone's overtraining, they may think that they can just phone it in and get it done. And that ain't going to do it either. So, you know, how to achieve an optimal level. That's what our goal is. So, we have to develop an awareness of intensity. And that means that we have to know when our intensity was at its best and try to capture that moment and try to reinvent it over and over and over again. So, um, you you can ask yourself questions such as, uh, what was I feeling physically? What was I thinking? What demands did I experience from myself or others? What aspects of the event influenced me? What was the level of the competition? And we have to look at that and we go, okay, let's capture it and let's, uh, let's keep it. Let's keep that. But you have to become very conscious and familiar with it. Also, uh, modifying your intensity level. Once you know what your optimal level of intensity is, then then you can access your intensity level readily. And what you can do is you vary it. And if you do that, you can have a range of intensity that's optimal rather than a level that is optimal and also to keep that optimal level of intensity you want to you want to increase your motivational self talk you know develop some statements that are encouraging you know you know success is based on effort i need to try not just depend on luck uh, to de- decrease intensity you may say i can i can handle this i prefer to win but i don't need to win strive for excellence but not perfection and so, you know, these things can help us not be as intense as we need to. Um, you know, there here's some motivational uh statements uh or or to fit your needs and and help you like uh increase uh, familiarity to to increase intensity is often Uh, Very helpful to become more familiar with the situation. For instance, uh, watching training videos, showing uh, an event can help you become more familiar. Showing up early to an event can help you become more accustomed to the surroundings. Also, uh, preparation for the unexpected. Many competitors who are physically and mentally prepared for an event may become disoriented. By the unexpected or by uncontrollable events, and so frequently it is useful to have a plan for these situations. Although, although you obviously can't plan for specific unexpected events, you can plan how to handle such situations. When uh, you know you've been put in a different position than you were put in before, and you also can reduce uh, physiological intensity by uh, reducing uh, breathing. By by uh, muscle relaxation, by imagery, by relaxing music, uh, even yoga. Uh, however, you can't use them for the first time during a competition. You need to have developed the techniques before you use these. And also, uh, increasing energy, and this is by managing. Uh, you want to manage that over intensity, and such message methods can include like physical activity, self talk, imagery, energizing, motivational music. That's how you get yourself to vary that intensity level for competition. And also, having uh, pre-routines before competition is very important. The more you lock into a pre-routine, the more relaxed you're going to be and the more familiar you're going to be with your level uh, of intensity. And also, another thing that helps you optimize your performance is identifying familiar people that are helpful to you. And that is huge in, in as far as getting your mental training focused and ready when you're about to compete. You know, um, athletes focus on failure sometimes. And when they do that, they often fail more. Um, such as a pitcher. If a pitcher throws a home run pitch and all of a sudden uh, the game is now they were up and now they're down. They often lose a lot of confidence and I can tell you that is so important to understand that if the coach left you in, if the manager left you in the game, then what you have to focus on is the next batter. You focus on the event you're coming into rather than what just happened. If they believe in you, you have to believe in yourself. All right, we're going to talk about mental training. We're going to talk about mindfulness, pain, uh, self, uh, self-efficacy, and setting progressive goals. And then we're going to talk about uh, motivation and uh, research on quitting and learning about quiet strength. And once we do that, after that, we're going to go into psychotic sports parents. Thanks for listening. Come back. (laughs)
0: your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Dr. Gary Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, but he is here to help you no matter where you are. Visit DRGBMFT.com. You can schedule an appointment with Dr. Bell, and many major health insurance plans are accepted. Call or text Dr. Bell today at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com. Dr. Bill could help you take back your life in 4 to 8 carefully constructed sessions. Stop coping and start living in the now. Call 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. Voiceamericaempowerment.com. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology.
1: Welcome back, everybody. All right. Now, you know, before I go into this other stuff, I just thought about something, and I I think it's important to talk about it. Um, You know, those, those of you that are parents, when you have children, especially children that are ADHD or hyperactive or love video games, um, these kind of kids that are uh, ADHD or the video game addicted kid are what are called linear thinkers. Many call them loners. And and you wonder, well, what kind of sports are they going to fit in? You know, Well, the deal is with kids like that, and, and once again, we're going to go back into sports psychology a little bit. What you have to think about is linear thinking. So linear thinking means a straight line. These kind of kids do really well – In performing in sports that are not team-oriented, but more oriented towards a line. So if you think about an ADHD kid, they're hunters, they're little hunters. So what you want to do is you want to put them in a sport like swimming, like tennis, like golf. Anything that goes in a line, those are the kind of sports that they do really well at. Sometimes basketball, if it's a team sport, they do really well at that because it's in a line. They go back and forth, back and forth. So little hyperactive kids... Uh, don't do well in, uh, in, in the uh, multitasking sports. They do really well in track or line- anything linear. Um, it's one, think of them as uh, little hunters. If they're addicted to video games, they probably may not be ADHD, but what they likely are is linear thinkers. So once again, think in lines when, it, when you're thinking about sports for these kind of kids. And I will tell you that they'll get just as addicted to the sport as they will uh, the video games. Maybe not, but something similar. Okay, um, so now let's think about mental training. You know, mental training is, is uh, legal, it's ex- inexpensive, it's effective, it's highly recommended by professional athletes, and to improve your performance, you use mental training to supplement your performance needs. Now, the huge thing about mental training is being able to stay present-focused, Keep your mind in the moment. You know, it's easier said than done. But, you know, it's easy to think about the last, you know, strike you had or the last uh, uh, time you dropped the ball or the last time you lost. But, uh, you know, then you're not on task. Know the task-specific cues you should focus on and be aware of uh, when you're not on task. Stop. Refocus your mind on the task or on what you should think about to execute. So once again, in sports psychology, we think about task-specific cues. Task-specific cues. That keeps us in the moment. So when you're at bat, how you stand at bat, how you stare at the ball, what your posture is, taking a, you know, timing the pitcher, and then seeing how they throw to the speed they throw and, and anticipating based on how, how they posture, how they throw, that's all staying in the moment. You've got to keep your mind in the moment if you're going to be a professional, top-ended, very high-performing athlete. Also, you want, you want to think one task at a time. One task at a time. If, if let's say, you're a football player You know, what you want to focus on is this particular down and what players you're playing up against, how to best perform against them, and how to, let's say, defend your quarterback. These are things that you need to stay focused. If you do that, you're going to perform well in sports and you're going to be safer in sports, which is even more important. The other thing about uh, mental training is do not think about outcomes or results. When you think about outcome and results, which in the end is what sports are all about, you actually lose the ability to function well and your execution goes down. Self-fulfilling prophecies never help you. Uh, you know, Just like in, in marriage, I tell people, hey, if you're going to talk about divorce, you're probably going to get it divorced. If, that's, if that keeps coming up and you consistently throw that at each other, you're probably going to get one. If you're thinking about a loss in a game, and and uh, fearing a loss and anticipating what it's going to be when you lose and how people are going to react, there's a high propensity for you to actually lose the game. You know, cue yourself to concentrate. This is another thing that people do to do very well, mental training for sports. Lock your concentration once, you know, once it's your turn to perform. Use a, a physical trigger to focus your mind, such as tightening you know, tightening your uh, gloves before you bat or, uh, you know, adjusting your helmet if you're playing football or, or, you know, whatever it is, maybe powdering your hands if you're playing tennis, you know, whatever it is, these are very important tasks to cue you up to get you to focus. Also, you want to relax your focus while you wait, you know, but that's by focusing on task-specific cues. And you also want to rehearse a success while you wait. Let's say if you're at the batter's box, you want to rehearse by timing the pitcher, by by thinking where do you want to hit the ball, by by looking at your your uh, best opportunities out in the field to get things done. You know, if you've got something you want to do, think of it in advance. Focus yourself on the idea of how you're going to do it. You know, mindfulness helps make the transition between deep relaxation methods, such as listening and, and uh, it, listening to music and everyday life. But, you know, mindfulness means living in the moment, being only in the moment. If you're going to be outside of the moment, you're not going to have the intensity level you need. And so, uh, you know, imagery is, is very helpful in a sense of that. And that's what I was talking about. You know, imagining yourself being successful, imagining how you can hit a ball, imagining winning a, a swimming meet, a, imagine playing uh, softball and, 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 and pitching a, a strike. These are very important ways that successful athletes will keep their momentum and will keep their streaks alive. Now, let's talk about pain. You know, uh, people are taught, to ignore pain so as not to let their op- opponent know of weaknesses and oft- often they become very skilled at I- ignoring the warning signs provided by pain and they may tend to minimize pain which can lead to problems of not recognizing the seriousness of an injury. You know pain is an important signal from the brain that, that there may be a problem somewhere in the body and when people do not experience pain such as a uh, 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 due to a uh, neurological dysfunction they can experience severe consequences including very crippled injuries that could have been prevented or fatal or limb-threatening infections. Therefore, we need to view pain not as a sign of weakness in sports but as a messenger. And as it is with all messengers some can be ignored but others need to be heeded. However, however, we should not decide to ignore a messenger until we have at least heard the message. The signal of pain needs to be attended to right away, a- and and then assess the cause and determine whether for future action needs to be taken. And so, sports athletes have to know how to assess pain how to focus on where it came from, what happened, and what the potential outcomes could be. You know, often pain is an early warning signal that when paid attention to can prevent further serious injuries. Um, You know, I I love hockey, and i got to tell you, hockey is such a dangerous sport. I mean, it's unbelievable uh, how much those athletes go through, and and oftentimes they are taught to ignore pain, but as they do that, they have a tendency to... uh, be injured much longer. So in, in, in a sport like hockey, boy, I'm telling you, those dudes can be out for months because of uh, simple injuries. Concussions are great, just like in football. Concussions are, are often just a part of the game. But boy, they can cause life-threatening or life-impending issues later on in life. Okay, so what is uh, self-efficacy? It is a strength of an individual's belief that they can be successful and perform a given activity. You know, self-efficacy has often been used as uh, the concept of self-esteem, which is the process of evaluating the self. However, self-efficacy is more accurately described as a precursor to self-esteem and is mediated by the individual's self-attribution. So, what creates this self-efficacy? This is the individual's... Uh, Given a situation tends to be derived from several sources uh, of potential attributions. Uh, Previous performance experiences are the most significant source of attributions that affects the development of self-efficacy. Also, uh, for example, a a golfer uh, makes his putt uh, on the last three holes, and this belief uh, can make the next putt increase in odds and hedge the bet of actually being able to do it because we have a confidence level in the moment that we're at our best skill right at that moment and we take advantage of it. Another uh, source of information that affects uh, self-efficacy is observing others performing a specific task. it's it's basically we re- observe someone else be successful and then we mimic that activity in our own performance and that can increase our self esteem or our self awareness and it can increase our performance and uh, also uh, you know verbal uh, persuasion which is somebody uh, talking to us about what we've done in the past and how we can do it in the future. You know, this is a coach being able to influence an athlete and being able to remind an athlete of what their true skill sets really are. Um, You know, an athlete's uh, physiological state of arousal uh, is very important. And and so uh, self-efficacy... And increasing it, it there 's some things that we can do to do that a build upon uh, successful experiences is one and and focusing on these experiences and how they 've helped us if we 've won a game before against a very difficult uh, team or another a competitor, using that and putting that in our mind and teaching ourselves that we can overcome obstacles that we didn 't believe in a long in the past that we could. Uh, overcome, that is a sense of building that efficacy that we're looking for. Also, observations of other peers' successes and how they've overcome the odds and overcome difficult processes and actually beat teams or competitors uh, in sports. Uh, Also, uh, positive feedback and also uh, psychological skills training. You know, helping an athlete learn to find their optimal level of intensity, which we talked about earlier, and setting that level of intensity and living in that level of intensity during a game. Um, very, very important. Now, progressive goals are also a big part of sports psychology. And there's ways to set goals and there's ways not to set goals. You know, to set effective goals, the difference between uh, performance-oriented goals and outcome-oriented goals have to be understood. uh, Performance-oriented goals focus on achieving specific skills uh, that are more effective than outcome goals. So, uh, focus on winning or on achieving is an outcome goal. A skill is a, 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 a very specific performance-oriented. These goals are more effective because they're under control of an athlete, uh, these, these uh, performance-oriented goals. These outcome-oriented goals will uh, you know, are ways to strategize how to win by looking at the weaknesses of our competition and by looking at the strengths that we have. So that's managing an outcome. You know, also, uh, we have to uh, assess our skill level and identify what specific skills need to be developed further to achieve an, a desired outcome. These uh, performance-oriented goals, these personal goals, help us uh, perform greater, uh, uh, get greater outcomes because we're, we're creating more tools to, to compete. And this makes competition fun, and this is what is so wonderful about sports. It's a constant evolution when people are honing their skills and building more tools to perform more greatly. You know, uh, uh, many people look at a baseball player here in California, Mike Trout, well, he is always honing his workouts, he's honing his skills. He is continuously evolving in how he bats, how he plays defensively so that he can play safer, play longer and also play better. That is the kind of athlete to look at as a role model because he understands that he's an evolving athlete. He is continuously evolving and he knows that he's at the best stage to do that. Also, um, you know, once we identify a specific goal, uh, we need to state whether it's positive, whether it's measurable, whether it's realistic, and we need to do it in steps um, so, we need to set target dates, on, on especially when we're looking for performance-oriented goals. Target dates. Do it in steps. Don't do it all at once. Many people think they should be an expert immediately because they set something in their mind. It takes time for our body, for our brain to understand what it takes to perform a skill to its best uh, optimal result continuously. We have to be able to to hone in on a specific intensity, a specific concentration level. And we have to do that over and over and over again. And that's how athletes can perform consistently at a very high professional uh, basis. And also, uh, athletes need to have a reward system, a personal reward system In place when goals are achieved and I can tell you eating badly is not a good performance uh, reward system (laughs) especially if you're going to be an athlete Um, you know also uh, motivation comes from coaches and uh, coaches really need to appeal to an athlete's inner character and elicit self-reflection if if you're a good coach you know, you really want to be the one uh, who can tell an athlete what their potential is. You're, you have to be a positive influence on them. Many coaches can be very negative on athletes, especially kids. And they can destroy the kid's desire to even perform in a sport. And also, life lessons. Uh, coaches are very good. Uh, the ones that are great teach life lessons. They take a, a sports to be a challenge And if you do your best, you'll never be disappointed, no matter what the outcome. All you want is the best you can do when you're performing in a sport. And that is a great coach. You know, somebody that teaches us that it's a continuous process. Just because we lose a game doesn't mean we've lost in life. And, you know, learning how to win and lose are huge. And coaches teaching people how to win and lose, that is a huge part of their uh, their Their job alright we're going to take another break we're going to come back we're going to talk about the quitting option and then we're going to talk about quiet strength and then we're going to talk about these psychotic sports parents
0: follow us on twitter for more great ideas at voice america empowerment do you like what you're hearing on the show today Dr. Gary Bell wants to help you no matter where you are. He's fast, efficient, effective, and has a no-bull approach to helping you in less than 10 sessions. If you're ready to change right now, drop everything and call or text Dr. Bell at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. You can also follow Dr. Bell on Twitter at drgbmft for some great insight and direction. Are you ready? Make that change. Pick up the phone or go to the site, 951-818-7856 or drgbmft.com. Remember, drgbmft.com. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. or you can just click on email host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology.
1: Welcome back. Okay, we're talking about uh, quitting, the quitting option in sports. You know, uh, in some cases, uh, we don't have a choice when it comes to completing tasks. Like in business, we need to finish a project or we get fired. You know, we have to make a profit or the business dies. You know, forced choices... Uh, uh, can really cause problems. In, in research, the forced choice is, is a controlled condition, and participants in these controlled conditions did not perform as well as people that had an intervention condition, which is the option to quit. So, one might think that the option of quitting would lead people to give up early, however, In research, they found the exact opposite. People become more persistent in their work and solve more puzzles and problems when they have the option to quit. You know, since the results were somewhat uh, counterintuitive, the researchers conducted two additional studies varying the condition to see whether the results would differ. However, when people had a choice to quit, they tended to be more persistent and accomplish more. So the option of quitting... Uh, Why does that lead us to accomplish more? One potential reason is a result that uh, the option of not quitting uh, leads uh, people to have to choose to continue. Once they choose to continue, the responsibility of the task falls on their shoulders, and they feel more vested in the task. And uh, the other thing is, uh, other research has shown that when people create their own goals, they tend to follow them better. Than having uh, when goals are given to them, um, you know. For example, smoking. Uh, you know, a person trying to quit smoking will do much better if asked, "How fewer cigarettes did you think you can smoke per day?" As opposed to being told to cut down ten percent for the week. You know, making your own goals is more effective than having someone else make them. Um, Another explanation about uh how quitting can uh, lead us to accomplish more is that uh people might have a certain amount of a uh, coercion sensitivity since uh you know which leads people to have opposite the opposite when they think they're being coerced you know people like to rebel I know exactly how 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 to uh you know uh, get a person to exercise by uh by telling them uh, they can't do it. (laughs) If you tell somebody they can't do it, oftentimes they'll go out and exercise. So, you know, it's probably a good thing to do that kind of stuff. You know, for coaches, the most obvious take home is to try uh, telling people that they always have the option to quit. Uh, When these individuals don't quit, they usually have taken on the responsibility themselves and uh, they are more of a problem solver rather than a problem. So that's very important in sports. Uh, you know, we have to look at that. The other thing to look at is, is a sense of quiet strength. You know, uh, some of the best athletes, Barry Sanders, played for the plays for the. Uh, he's a Hall of Fame running back. Played for the Detroit Lions. He was awesome. I mean, he did not receive accolades. After every touchdown, he did not do a dance. Rather, he tossed the ball to the referee and returned to the sideline. You know, he was Superman with a Clark Kent demeanor. He focused on his skills rather than focusing and, and, and how he was doing and his personal tasks rather than seeking accolades. Um, you know, th- another thing is... Uh, Looking at uh, uh, Bruce Lee, he, he practiced quiet right. strength. Uh, he, he said uh, showing off is the fool's idea of glory and uh, he uh, was in movies and he demonstrated this style by uh, tricking uh, in Enter the Dragon, an obnoxious fighter into a small boat and then he let loose that boat into open water. These thought processes about quiet strength make athletes extremely effective and extremely consistent. Quiet strength. So, what that means is they focus on their process rather than their outcomes. So, let's define these psychotic sports parents. You know, there's the voice command parent. This parent thinks they have to control every moment that their kid uh, makes it's as if they think their kid is a robot and functions on voice commands. You know, I'm sure you've heard these people before. Stop kicking their, watch the batter, touch the base, pay attention, put your hat back on. Don't do that with your glove. Go to second, go to second, slide, that's your ball. These are things that, that this person, they just tell their kid constantly how to perform while they're out on the field. There's also the obnoxious uh, positive cheerleader. This person usually is a uh, sports mom. They're so fearful that their kid is going to be damaged or, or, or uh, by a missed ball or a goal that they didn't make. And so they, they shower them with them praise the entire game. It's okay. Good try. You'll get them next time. Great job. You know, I'm all for this positive affirmations, that's great, but there's just no need to have a remark every time your kid wipes their butt on the field. I mean, it's just crazy. Also, there's also this uh, ultra-competitive uh, sports dad and parent. Um, they're usually a pretty good athlete themselves, and they usually want their kid to be uh, in control and to be what they think of themselves as. So, they, uh, for the most part, they think out loud. And they think things like, come on, go to the ball, hustle, pass it, shoot, go to the the goal, uh, uh, follow your shot. It's your ball. You know, they say crap like that. And this one is a good person. They're fun to talk sports with. They may even be uh, a friend. But, you know, this person is overbearing because they're just out there constantly having to talk. And they're interrupting the actual enjoyment of the sport. And they're also focusing their kid on them rather than on their kid. They're focusing everybody on them rather than their kid. And it's so sad. There's also these mega loud cheering people. These people are so obnoxious and And you know you practically need noise cancelling headphones to be next to them it 's so hard to enjoy your children 's sports when you have these obnoxious people also there 's the blamer you know it 's everyone else 's fault you know they can 't accept the fact that their kid you know didn 't perform at a one thousand percent in a game you know they they so they have to uh, they have to basically uh blame the coach, blame the referee blame, blame the you know, the, the, anybody, and, and say, you know, see what happens. They screwed them up. They're, they're, they're adjusting how they stand when they bat. They're adjusting how they shoot, and it's, it's their fault. Uh, it's unbelievable how these people come in and focus their, their kids on themselves rather than let their kids enjoy their sports. Let their coach coach. There's also the insulter's. You know these these psychos uh, are horrible. You know, deep down, these over the top parents generally mean well, and and this kind of parent is just mean though. They they are not very good people. These people that are insulters basically they stay say stuff like, "Hey, it's it's better to be lucky than be good." You know, they're very passive aggressive. You know, these are the absolute worst people to sit next to, and it's so uncomfortable. And so, uh, you know, they, they like to make these negative comments in public and insults about your, who their kid's competing against, even their own children. Some people are like that. There's also these psychos that are tailgaters. It's like they are they think they're at their uh, college football tailgating days, and, and they usually stand off to the side with a a constant beer in their hands, Some of these people will make fun of other people's kids on the field, each one trying to make a funnier comment than the next one. Some of them don't even pay attention to the game, and their poor kid is merely an excuse to hang out and socialize with friends. These are other psychotic sports parents. Um, There's also these people you just love to punch. You know, they're always shouting uh, insults, uh, passive-aggressive comments. To players, coaches, parents on the team, they say stuff like, uh, "Come on, you can you you can rip this kid. He's throwing batting practice. You, your little sister swings harder than the, this kid. Strike him out." Or, "Yeah, there, there's a class move. Teach your kids to take second base when you've already up to ten runs. Good job, coach. You know these kind of turds are horrible." <laughs> Don't let sport, bad sports parents train you how to be a bad sports parent. Here's a, here's a sign of a bad sports parent. Coaching from the sideline. That is number one. People that think they're the coach and they're not even the coach, they're shouting from the, the, the uh, sideline, these are bad sports parents. Uh, their expectations are too high. They don't look at their kid as a work in progress, or they don't look at their kid as trying a new skill during that day. They don't let their kid enjoy the sport and practice and and try to develop. What they want them to do is perform at an optimal level at all times, and that is not possible. Um, You know, it's good to have dreams. It's good to set high goals, but the odds are against you and your young a kid approaching the game is what it's about and learning to how to play the game is more about what it's about. Also, uh, psychotic, bad sports parents are criticizing other kids. They're arguing with just about anyone. Uh, they're, they're playing the blame game. Uh, they, they think, uh, that their opponents of their child is cheating. They also are brag. They love to brag. Uh, they, they, uh, oftentimes don't let their kids have a life outside of sports, and and they yell in front of their kid in front of everyone if they lose or win or have trouble. And they also swear or complain or or, or begin uh, begin, uh, being a loudmouth. These are people that are psychotic sports parents. Now, here's a bad coach for you. They single out kids to criticize. They place winning above everything. They ignore safety and health issues. The coach allows kids to badmouth each other. They play favorites. They ask kids to deceive their parents. You know, uh, they, they may tell a parent uh, or an athlete to conceal information from the parents by hiding something, um, you know, like their abusive behavior. They're disrespectful and they're manipulative. You know, they can play one athlete against another. They play head games. That is not a good coach. A good coach is somebody, um, you know, when working with uh, parents or or players, they help the athletes understand uh, strict expectations. They help the parents understand the expectations and demands about how their kids should perform. They actually coach people that are parents on how to parent their children not just the athletes. Um, These also uh, folks are, um, if they have athletes who have high levels of self-confidence and end up winners, they often want their athletes to feel self-confident about game time. And, And that means that they teach them how to prepare for a game. And also that they prepare them on how to win and lose. That they want their teams to win, but they also understand that part of competing means sometimes you lose. And so what they teach athletes is what they got out of the game. Every failure is an opportunity to learn. And so that's what they use uh, when they lose. They use the material of how they lost or reviewing tapes or reviewing information. And taking that and turning that into victory, that is a good coach. They also emphasize process over results. You know, that's huge. And they also watch what they say. They are very careful. You know, uh, they have sincere efforts to be supportive, often saying things that kids interpret uh, as as a positive. Uh, For example, they might say, uh, I'm hoping you're going to go for four for four against this pitcher today. But I understand if you don't, this is a tough one. You know, they, they they are very good about setting an expectation or setting preference, but not an expectation. And that's huge. There's a huge difference between a preference and an expectation. They coach with preferences. That's a good coach. So, you know, benefits for kids. Team sports… Uh, like like uh, volleyball, basketball, lacrosse, water polo, do more than just keep kids fit. By, by instilling healthy habits and, and keeping children busy and active, the team practices and the games can help players learn how to not only be more physical, more mentally, more emotionally uh, developed, but also learn how to share. And, and there's no I in a team. And that is a wonderful lesson. Also, respect is huge. And that's something that they learn. They learn time management in sports. They, they also learn what an A-plus looks like on and off the field. They also have a sense of, of, of stress relief and, and that winning isn't everything and, and that um, not be a, a we player, not a me player. Team sports are excellent for kids. And they also teach kids how to work hard and encourage others. All right, that's our show on sports, psychology, and psychotic sports parents. Our next show is about phobias, and I want to thank everybody for listening. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback, drgbmft at sbcglobal.net or Twitter at drgbmft. Now, remember, you never know what you have until you clean your room. Also, remember, if you want to know if your man is having an affair, take his cell phone to the winch's front door and see if the Wi-Fi connects. All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening, everybody.
0: That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you.
1: If your man is having an affair, take his cell phone to the winch's front door and see if the Wi-Fi connects. All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening, everybody.
0: That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you.